The uh, passage this morning is uh, Luke chapter 13. So uh, in the Pew Bible, the Black Pew Bible in front of you, that can be found on page uh, 872. Luke 13, as we make our way through uh, this gospel. Let's be truthful, we all like to be associated uh, with a winner. When it comes to pro sports, it's a great place to live. You know, Boston, I was reminded of this recently when I was in the JetBlue Terminal at Logan, you know. If you ever walk through there, they have all of the, the various banners of these titles that uh, different Boston teams, pro sports teams, have won over the years. And so it's kind of nice. It's, not, it's nice to be, it's almost anticipated, you know, that somehow we will be represented with some type of champion in pro sports. Uh, it's especially true uh, in college sports if you live in North Carolina, though, right? And uh, we used to live in, I, I know, uh, some Duke fans are a little bit sour about that, Jonathan, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> We're reminded last night of how wonderful college basketball is in the Final Four when Duke and Carolina go to the Final Four game. And uh, that's where we used to live between uh, Duke and Chapel Hill prior to moving here. And so it's, it's fun being associated, you know, with winners. Uh, over the years, probably a dozen plus times, Duke and Carolina have been represented in the Final Four in the national championship. Easy. Of course, there's, there's something to be said for longtime faithful uh, fans who actually enjoy pulling for the underdog like my wife Krista does. Perhaps that's why... Perhaps that's why she's been a Christian, uh, you know, and a lifelong follower of Jesus. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You see, let's face it, being identified with Jesus and being a Christian sometimes feels like we're on the losing team, especially here in New England. Right? Um, I don't know how else to put that. Uh, that's, not, and that's only true in particular in the last century, of course. Prior to that, it wouldn't have been the case, but it should be. It's kind of, you know... You, you think it'd be nice to not be part of the minority, unpopular religion in New England. I mean, we have this religion that in many ways, some would say, is seemingly uh, irrelevant. It's morally prohibitive. It's socially regressive. It's intellectually simple. It's tied, of all things, to this archaic book that uses a bunch of uh, analogies that are uh, from agricultural. I mean, what's the problem? And then Jesus, you know, we know Jesus is impressive. We know Jesus is the victor and the king. But sometimes you just wonder, doesn't Jesus need like a, I don't know, like a PR manager or a better campaign? I mean, we, we really could, could, you know, push him into the limelight. The king and the kingdom could be a little more in vogue if we just got a really cool, you know, video and then a social media explosion of all the things that are great about. It'd just be great if Jesus would just come back and just perform a few more of those miracles that we could actually get, you know, on one of those viral videos. That would be the real big uh, changer for us to be on the winning team. Don't you like being associated with the winner? Again, even if Jesus were to do that, I, you know, seeing isn't always believing. In fact, it's, it's pretty staggering to consider the number of times just in the New Testament recorded that people do witness the power, the authority, the, the compassion of Jesus in flesh and blood, and yet they don't follow him. Or even worse, they say, who cares so what? Or even worse, as we'll read here, they correct him. So I know you just sat down. Stand up, if you would, again, in deference to God's word as we look together at Luke 13. We're going to begin, we're just looking at verses 10 through 17, excuse me, through 21. Hear this, this is the word of God. Beginning verse 10, Luke 13. Now he was teaching 
in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had, been, who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully strengthen herself. When Jesus saw her, he called, over, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which you ought to work ought to be done. Come on these days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it to? What shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is his word. Let's pray and ask his help. You may be seated. Come, please, we ask, Father, send your spirit and take this, your word, deep uh, into our hearts. Would you help us to hear, and not only hear, but to listen? Would you help us this morning to hear the message of love from our Savior and our King, Jesus? Amen. It was Augustine, uh, the early church father, who prayed and said it so well. Our whole business in this life is to restore health to the eye of the heart, whereby God might be seen. We need the, the eye, that faculty, so to speak, that, the eye of our heart to be healed so that we might see God, to see God clearly. But of course, in our natural state, we, we don't see. Well, no, let me correct that. We can't see. No, no, actually, it's, we don't want to see the things of the king and the kingdom in our natural state. And then he comes and he, he does open our eyes and the eye of our heart. It's a beautiful thing. What is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is the realm over which the king has authority and power. And, and that king, uh, his authority and his power is experienced. But it's not just something that we experience in our hearts now. The kingdom of God is something that we will see Later, it's, it's off in the future, but it's, it's both. To be clear, the kingdom of God is already, we say, and not yet. And we're living in the already not yet, the in-between. The king has already come and he's exp- we've begun to see that his, his great power. We see it working in the life of his people and the church, but we have not seen it yet in all of its fullness, in all of the fulfillment, the manifestation of the kingdom yet to come. Now, this past week, Krista, who's a school teacher, uh, took her, her class in another grade up to the city, to the, the, Boston, the Boston Science Museum. There's been some really cool exhibits over the years there. Uh, there's this one there that uh, Krista was recounting, and she took a couple of pictures of, and it's a cross-section of uh, one of the sequoias from, 
from, uh, from the redwood forest. And that, that sequoia tree is, is estimated to be over 2,000 years old. It's, it's, it's huge. It's massive. And, and then below it, there's this, this timeline that recounts how the sequoia tree over the... What, what's happened in those 2,000 years? Well, it was planted and it was growing just before Julius Caesar was born. And then there's another place on the timeline there below that you can read that this is how small the tree that began just as a little cone is the seed of a, of a sequoia. And then, and then the, 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 the portrayal of what that tree would have been like when Jesus was born. <laughs> and then later on, you know, tracking down through the centuries. The centuries. And now it would have been a tree even taller than the, the, the pointed tip that's uh, over 170 feet tall at the Boston Science Museum. Such is the kingdom of God, we're reminded here. Very, very small in its beginnings and then coming into, into full. Now, these two accounts, the, the line, the melody that kind of runs through, I know it looks like they're separated. They are in the, the ESV or, or NIV or whatever uh, translation you have there, but they do run together. And what makes those run together, the, the melody, so to speak, of that is the kingdom. And so just two questions uh, this morning. They're listed in the order of service. Who is the king? The, just to highlight the king of the kingdom. And the other heading, the other thing that I want to highlight is the nature of the kingdom. The king of the kingdom we see in these first verses 10 through 17. And then the two metaphors in verses 18 through 21, we see part of the nature of the kingdom of God. So first, the king, in verse 10, we see this scene begins in kind of a, I mean, it's, it's kind of a mundane, uh, everyday kind of normal week. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's doing the same thing that he does every single Sabbath. He's in worship. He comes to, to synagogue. There he is. Again, he's worshiping uh, God, his father. He goes there every Lord's Day. In fact, it's recorded earlier in Luke 4. We know that that was the case because it says in Luke 4 this. In fact, why don't you just turn? I'm having you do this a couple of times. Uh, turn over to Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. Now, a, l- a little ways into to Luke 4, 16, it talks about Jesus heading to the synagogue. But there's a key phrase that I want us to appreciate there. It says in verse 16, and as was his custom... Halfway through verse 16, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now, let's continue on. This is a pretty powerful scene. Imagine what it would have been like. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it is written. And this is a quote from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Now, just terminology here, that would have been when the sermon started. I know it's kind of opposite now because I stand up in the context of worship to preach. But he sat down and began to teach. And it says in all of the eyes, this is staggering to think about. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, Jesus. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, surely they, they could not wrap their minds around what they had just heard. They would have been completely blown away. They could not have believed what they were hearing. But here he is again. He's going even a more, in a more pointed way. 
to show that this is the fulfillment. You're seeing what has promised of Messiah and King because look at this woman right now in the synagogue. She has been freed from this oppression. He's fulfilling prophecies. Verse 10, here's his question. Who is this woman? Well, I mean, we, I mean she's disabled. Luke would want us to see, even as a physician, as a, as a historian, he wants us to understand something of, of, of her dilemma, her malady. She's disabled. Physicians actually have a special name for this. They can diagnose it. I can't even pronounce the name, but it's a, it's a form of arthritis of the spine where things begin to fuse and over time, a person can no longer stand up straight. Maybe you've seen someone with this disorder. Luke understood this again, but he also knows that there's not only a physical reality, there's something spiritual at work here. As one commentator notes, this is a condition that is, is purely physical in effect, but it's caused by demonic power, which is not to say that she's possessed of a demon, but she is influenced. This affliction is brought on to her because of an evil spirit. Maybe you remember this as a kid, right? It doesn't matter what generation, you know, you, you for the first time or two that you see someone who has a, a problem or a deformity physically as a kid, you just what? You just stare at them. And then what does your parents, what do your parents do? Stop staring. Stop staring. And really, sometimes it's just you don't know what to do. You're, you're, you're genuinely curious. But your parents say it's not polite. Don't don't stare at them. But what they don't tell you when you're a kid is that there's going to come a day when you're grown up and you, you don't look at them. In fact, you're, you're kind of calloused and you, you have a way of just overlooking some of these people. You don't want to see some of it. I remember the first time that I saw the most impoverished place that I'd ever been to. It was a small village in Western Africa. I'd been in the city, but I went out with a group into this village. And I remember getting out of our van and I had a, a, a small bag of candy. And there were some kids that found out I had candy. And I'm telling you, it felt like a small earthquake as a stampede of children came running after me with this, uh, with this gum and candy. But I noticed later there was a small boy who was kind of on the edge of the village. And he sat there all day and he had to because he had a, a severe form of uh, what I could only guess was cerebral palsy. And, uh, and, and many people just, it, they acted and functioned as if he wasn't there at all. And a young boy, I found a young man who's a college student named Jacob, who was from the United States, was, was living uh, in this portion of, of West Africa. And he would go on a weekly basis out to this village and he would take uh, and care for this boy and help to bathe him. And he even, he even came up with the money to get a, a small cart that would give some more mobility to this boy who was to everyone in the village in some way, uh, believing in an, you know, an animism and evil spirits, thought that he didn't deserve attention. And he didn't have function. And he was, he was a social outcast. And this is this woman right here in front of us in the text, right? I remember just feeling almost speechless. But... Here's this woman who is not noticed at all. She's on the margins. She, she's so socially awkward. She can't even look up and, and, and make eye contact with people. And yet she shuffles her way to worship the living God. And we know that she's, Jesus refers to her as a, as a daughter of Abraham, which is to compliment her to say she's part of the covenant community. 
She's a woman of, of faith. It was Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. She's a woman who is a daughter of Abraham. Though she's overlooked, Alistair Begg, who's one of my favorite Bible teachers, helped me see the reversal that happens here. Because if you go back, and don't, don't turn there, but in Luke 7, there's another account where a woman comes and she is overwhelmed at Jesus and she, she touches his feet and she anoints it with oil. She, she's weeping with joy. And the, the, the Pharisee of the home says, if only Jesus, he says to himself, Jesus knows his heart and mind. If only he knew who was touching him, she shouldn't be touching him. And then the reverse of that happens here because Jesus sees her. And as much as the Pharisee and the the ruler of the synagogue is now saying, you shouldn't be touching her. Jesus goes and he sees her and he takes the initiative and he calls out to her and invites her forward. And in a way that we can't even fathom in compassion and authority. He places his hands on her. She is helped. She is healed. But notice that Jesus doesn't just say, now you have no more problems with walking and socializing. He says to her, no, actually, you are free. You have been released. She is freed from the influence of this evil spirit. Jesus could have just said, stand, you're, you're well. But he says, no, you're free. One pastor wrote this. He says, wherever the kingdom comes, it breaks the rule and power of Satan. And there will be no disability in the kingdom of God. Everything that's crooked, including the backs bent from the devil's riding, will be straightened and Satan thrown off and glory given to God. That's, that's worthy of praying for. Lord, come back. Let your kingdom come in all of its fullness. So that a vision of that kind of thing will be fixed. Could you, could you, could you say amen? Amen. Now, notice, of course, what is her response? Verse 13, she does. She glorifies God. And then at verse 17, what's the response of everyone else? They rejoice. They're, they're elated. They're, they're, they're overwhelmed at what Jesus can do. And then leave it to the religious leader to throw a, a wet, not really an angry wet blanket on the whole thing because he says in verse, it says in verse 16, 14, excuse me, Luke records indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He says, wrong time, wrong place. And I, it's, it's like, how, how, how could you let that? I mean, I, you, we've all had the moments when you say, I know why I fought that thought, but I don't know how it made its way to its, my mouth. But this guy verbalized it. He rebukes Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, was and is designed by God to be a day of rest and a day of worship, a sacred day. However, of course, first century Judaism had now taken it to a whole new level, adding on 39 different categories of, in part of their tradition of what would constitute work on the Sabbath, including you could only walk a, an absolute de- uh, definitive distance. You could only pick up uh, a, a tiny amount of weight. There's all of these different categories. And so he's saying, you can't heal 
this woman on the Sabbath, although all he did was place his hands on her. Of course, wouldn't you see? God's on my side, okay? She just got healed. Like, what, what are we talking about here? The stubborn legalism. Obviously, the rules had obscured their vision of the Sabbath, particularly the Lord of the Sabbath, who's standing right in front of them. Then verse 15, faster than a late night show host comedian, Jesus has this great humiliating comeback, right? I love it. He's like, he's like, you hypocrites. What does he say? Verse 15, he asked him two questions. The first question is what? And he's arguing. Notice how he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. The first one he says is this. Do you allow your livestock, not, not, your, not your favorite pet, just your donkey livestock to be released so they can drink, go drink water anytime, seven days a week, they can do that. So my next question for you Lesser to the greater, so his argument goes, consider this daughter of Abraham for 18 years. Would it not be fitting that she would find relief on this day? And of all places, this is the right day. This is the right time to show the redeeming work of God to set her free. They are humiliated, put to shame, it says. Luke records, everyone else rejoices. In essence, this is precisely the time. You take care of you, all of you, you've made special provision in all of your laws and, and, and added on rules as to what Sabbath means. You'll take care of your animals. And the good shepherd says, I'm going to come take care of this woman because she's my sheep. Friends, we live in a crooked world. Things are crooked everywhere. Physically, relationally, emotionally. Our hearts at times are crooked. But what do we know as followers of Christ? We, we feel it. We're not unacquainted with it. But yet, in a crooked, broken world that someday will be healed, we sing. Right? We sing, unfortunately only about once a year, joy to the world which is less of a hymn and carol about the first coming of Jesus and more about, in many ways, the second coming of Jesus. He comes to what? Make his blessing known, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. The king has come. The kingdom is coming again and so my question is, are you surrendered to him wholeheartedly? Don't, don't, I said this last week, there is urgency in this. We don't know when he is to return. We pray it will be soon. Please, even more so, when we consider these tragedies and maladies and confusion. And you can be united by faith to Christ and experience his resurrection power. And all of you, all of us who belong to him, can have everything straightened out. Every one of us can be freed. All of the things that burden us, all of the problems, all of the tears. And if you're a young person, those tears are coming someday for you. But there's another day greater yet coming when he will undo all of that. Do you know him? Are you united to him? This is the king.
Now, the kingdom, let's move on to these last few verses, the nature of the kingdom. Jesus highlights two metaphors. And by the way, these are linked. And one of the hints that Luke helps us to appreciate that by is in verse 18, because he said, therefore. In other words, he's saying, okay, now having healed this woman and having rebuked the hypocrisy and revealed it for what it is, I've got your attention. Now, let me ask you a question. To what should we compare the kingdom of God? What is it like? What is the kingdom of God, in essence, like? Where is the kingdom at work? Well, a couple of principles that he highlights in these two metaphors. One is, it teaches us that the kingdom is more subtle and gradual than it is sensational. The kingdom is more, far more subtle and gradual than it is sensational. The second thing we understand about the kingdom from these metaphors is that it's more about transformation than it is about information. The kingdom, to speak of its subtle nature, is a slow thing. It's organic. It's like things that are growing. Of course, Jesus employs the picture of the tiny mustard seed, the smallest seed that Jesus and his hearers would have known of. By the way, one commentator highlighted this. It would have taken 750 of those seeds to constitute just one gram. That is pretty small. Maybe a bit of an overstatement to say that it would grow into a tree. It's really more like a, the mustard seed grows into a bush. But it's pretty impressive and it's fast. You know, it, it, it achieves you know, 8 or even 12 feet high. And then there's this other metaphor of the leaven of a woman kneading in. Uh, maybe she didn't have a small packet. Maybe she had a small pinch of, of sourdough. It gradually makes its way into these three measures. The three measures would have been, you know, dozens and dozens of pounds of flour, enough to feed, you know, like a hundred people she's making bread for. And that yeast, that tiny bit of yeast that you, you may not even be able to see with your eye has made its way through all of that bread. Elsewhere, leaven sometimes is known as a negative thing because of how pervasive and, and infectious and contagious it is. Here, Jesus is employing it as a metaphor, something positive, because it's growing. It's gradual. It's organic. It was still in, in, impressive with its potency, the tiny nature of it. But even the notion, though, of Christianity, to think of it this way, the way that Jesus comes in, he doesn't go into the city and say, I want to take all the celebrities, and I want to take all the politicians, and I want to take everyone that you esteem as great. And that's where we're going to make the kingdom. Now he goes to Galilee. He goes to fishermen. He goes to tax collectors. And he takes what is the seemingly small people. And he begins to bring forth a ministry. A kingdom. I mean, the, the gospel message of the kingdom doesn't really make Headlines, right? I mean, what makes headlines? Well, I mean, it's usually, it's usually positioned not just around the truth, but what we want to hear. It's sensational, right? News so often, the headlines of news is sensational. I opened up this morning, USA Today website to see what would have been some of the headlines. I don't make this stuff up. Here it is. Scenes from a horror movie, civilians found dead on the streets after Russians retreat. The other headline beneath that one was, SNL, of course, pokes fun at Will Smith's Oscar slap. 
Could have seen that one coming. Here's another one. The New Jersey police were stunned by a cow that was assaulting a mailbox. Wow. Dunkin' Donuts, also now referred to as Dunkin'. Dunkin' has a new makeup collection. Yes, cosmetics inspired by donuts and coffee. This is this morning on USA Today. There you go. What about the church? What about Jesus and the kingdom? I didn't read anything about Jesus or the church or the kingdom in in any news source that I just perused this morning. The gospel of the kingdom is far more gradual and subtle. It's working things like hope and forgiveness and generosity. Reconciliation between people. It's working love into hearts. It's bringing forth fruit like honesty and integrity in people's individual lives and families. Yes, it doesn't make the headlines. No, it's not sensational. In fact, it's, it's more like leaven or yeast. It's hidden and it's subtle, but it's nevertheless at work. Don't be mistaken. There's still something impressive and amazing about the gospel because once it does take root, it is bringing forth great things. It's, it's pretty phenomenal how contagious you would say it is. I mean, the advance of the Christian faith having begun with people like fishermen, then to go on after the following days of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is saying, look, it might be slow, but it will grow. It will not be overnight. But through the very small church, I and mean, this, this exceeded anyone's expectations that you could possibly fathom, even under the intense oppression from the Roman Empire, it spread. The kingdom of God in the local church spread without ceasing. In fact, historians estimate that 300 years after the start of Christianity in, in the New Church, New Testament church, the faith of worshiping Jesus, that, that ongoing thing week after week after week that was going on, it had grown to five to somewhere north of 8 million people in every corner of the Roman Empire. By the way, no media, no, no training centers, no very little funding, and a boatload of persecution. It was, it was spreading because slaves were sharing with their master and brothers were sharing with brothers. People were talking men and women in the marketplace about who God is and what Jesus had done having risen from the grave and lives were transformed. The yeast had reached out to touch and it, that, that, that yeast has also established the roots of so many wonderful things in any given society where Christianity is by way of education and hospitals and orphanages. The next thing I want to highlight from these two metaphors is that the gospel is more about transformation than information. Now, to be clear, the good news, the, the, the message of the kingdom is not just information or an ideology, though it is that. But it's more because it's bringing forth transformation to hearts and heads and hands, to our knowing and our being and our, our doing, and it has resurrection power to do and accomplish just that. It's new life. It's new power that Jesus brings. I'm so grateful that First Peter highlights the fact that it is the imperishable seed of our faith. 
And even then, it goes forth and brings forth transformation in our hearts. I know the gospel has brought me new desires. And if he wants to be an amazing king, part of us would be inclined to say, why don't you shake the ground? Why don't you do something of stunning, undeniable power like letting uh, you know, a meteor just hit the earth with you know, your signature on the side or something, Jesus? But I don't think that's how he operates because that would be very surfacy. It would be very temporary and it's more substantial and it's more it's more pervasive when things are organic and are planted and bringing forth things. Why would it be? Why not a new campaign? I mean, of all things, this is how the kingdom grows. Small churches with simple people standing up here, proclaiming and expositing this message. Yes, we could use a better marketing campaign. But is that how it works? Why a seed? Why not a, why not a meteor that just grabs everybody's attention and slams into earth? Because it is gradual. It looks weak and it's vulnerable. That's one of the reasons that Jesus was rejected. So often the seed seems so weak and so underwhelming. That's because King Jesus has a unique and more pervasive way. A number of years ago, I remember walking on a street in Cambridge. And it was in a neighborhood. And I was actually going to preach at a, a small uh, Reformed Presbyterian church that's, uh, that's tucked away there. It's been there for a long, long time. And uh, I was walking on, on the street. And uh, I, came, I came across uh, the sidewalk that was really all une- uneven and broken apart. And, and why? Because a tree had gotten its root underneath it. And as I looked at my peripheral vision, I see a guy, kid you not, he's over there with a jackhammer trying to break open the concrete on the other side of the sidewalk. And I thought, well, that is so ironic. Because <laughs> all it would have taken is just a little seed and a whole lot of patience. But nevertheless, it's just here he is trying, not so successfully as far as I can tell, to break through this concrete. And lo and behold, the force of this tree has it all broken open. You know why King Jesus doesn't do it? He's upside down and backwards because he conquers now by love and not by force. He comes and he dies. He begins forth a a victory that we can't altogether see. One more passage. I want you to turn there. It's John. So turn over to John chapter 12. In the Pew Bible, it's page 899. John 12, beginning of verse 23, Jesus says this. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus knew he must die to triumph. The shame, the weight, the loneliness that Jesus endured, the loneliness of the cross, the pain, the shame. He must be like that lone seed that goes into the ground and dies, bearing our sin and then breaking through in resurrection power to bring forth a life-changing harvest. We have good news. 
of a king and a kingdom, and it must be shared. That's the other part of this that I just want you to appreciate as a takeaway. Why is it shared? Well, there's this illusion, this imagery that Jesus has here. I hadn't mentioned it prior to now, but the mustard seed imagery and then it growing up to form a tree which birds can nest in. This is part of an illusion uh, alluding to uh, other language where the covenant community of God's people is to be as prophesied in Daniel 4 and Ezekiel 17 that the nation, the people of God, the covenant community would be a blessing to the nations as if one of those trees. Friends, I'm telling you, we are the covenant community. And, 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 and it's not a, that impressive. Paul said, not all of you, not many of you were of noble birth or special talents or you know, some type of remarkable position in life. But he chose the weak and the, the, the small things to shame those who imagine themselves to be wise. If you want to know Jesus straightening you out and bringing healing and freedom and redemption, then identify with the woman. Not with something that you aspire to is great. And then think about who we should be sharing with. That we're meant to be a blessing. That we have tasted of the goodness of the authority of the power of the mercy of the king. And we must express it. We need to share as if seeds to other people in our lives. Inviting them to consider. Inviting them to to read and to appreciate and to even follow Jesus. Anticipate, of course, that as we do that, some will find it underwhelming or unimpressive, even, frankly, offensive. But God can and will bring the increase to our faith and the transformation in our life. And he intended to bring and intends to bring growth even to his church, as small as it may be. Even in places like New England or even more so in countries in the 1040 window. The kingdom, the king in the kingdom, like a seed or little leaven, it's gradual and it's subtle, but it brings forth great transformation and power in the gospel. Let's thank God and ask his help. Father, we pray right now that you First of all, we pray you'd forgive us for overlooking people. Overlooking the the subtle nature, the way that you reach out to people who are less in our eyes. We've been so self-centered. Forgive us, Lord, for our pride, our unbelief. Forgive us, God, for being shy, even sometimes altogether silent about the king and the kingdom. Would you give us boldness to share? Would you give us opportunities to invite people, even especially this time of year, to consider you, Jesus, and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray you'd bring revival. Even when we think about the turmoil and the uncertainty and the war, we do pray your mercy on the people in Ukraine now dispersed and many of them suffering in ways that we can't even imagine with great grief. But I pray you'd use this. Would you, be, would you be glorified to mercifully use these things to bring forth revival as people see and sense the frailty of life? Would you give relief, God, and mercy to those, strength to those who do face burdens, for those who face various maladies and chronic illness, burdens on their back that are heavy and sometimes almost seem demonic? Please have mercy. Well, I pray you'd be today with the Salmons. We rejoice with them at the, the
the birth of this little baby boy, Owen, and we pray for his strength and health and his lungs. Cause him to grow and develop. We pray for Corey that you would give her strength and, and energy and rest. Lord, we get this glimpse of the king and the kingdom and we just can't help but pray, Lord, please come back. Make all things right and all things new.